So, happy Labor Day. Thank you. Yeah, you get a day off. Many of you get a day off. Kids don't have to go to school on Monday, three-day weekend. Um, yeah, so that's, that's what we're celebrating. I know a lot of people are out camping and making, taking advantage of it. Hey, Benny, happy birthday. Wow, it's a, a wild and rowdy crowd this morning. Labor Day, we can do whatever we want, right? Now, I was thinking about Labor Day, and I was thinking about, fir like, first jobs. What was your first job? Just say it out loud. What was your first job? Burger King. Burger King. Oh, we got a couple Burger Kings. Any McDonald's? Any McDonald's people? Nope. McDonald's right there. Okay, yeah. My first job was uh, at 15 years old, because the only place at the time that would hire 15-year-olds was McDonald's, uh, right there near Stone Mountain, East Park Place. Uh, and I'd mowed some lawns before, like in our neighborhood, obviously done chores and stuff like that. But there was something about getting a paycheck, you know? I mean, I, like that $4.25 an hour that I was making, so proud of it uh, and, uh, and that first job. And, but you all know what it is to have a job. And uh, some of those jobs are things that you enjoy. Like I worked at a summer camp one summer that was uh, super fulfilling uh, and exciting. We also have had jobs that is just a grind. You just have to show up for and, and bear through it, right? Well, it's interesting because Labor Day actually was created, uh, it was, uh, there was a lot of unrest in America because we were shifting from uh, basically farms to factories, right at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, and workers were beginning to uh, feel unseen, unheard, and underappreciated. And so there's all these like protests that were happening around America, so the government, what they decided to do is give everyone a day off, you know, as if that would be the solution. It's like everyone's complaining. Well, take a day off. So that was actually the beginning of Labor Day. And, uh, but what's amazing to think about is that uh, for the average worker that felt unseen, unheard, and underappreciated, is what we find in the Bible, in the gospel, is a God who sees us, who hears us, who you are deeply valuable to, and has created you for good work. For good work. You know, work actually came before the fall. It wasn't like we sinned and then now we have the punishment of having to get jobs. Like when we were created, we were created by God, and the mandate given was to, to be fruitful, multiply, and to have dominion, to steward this creation that God has given us, to, to have fruitful labor, so to speak. But it's only after the fall, when we turn our back on God and, uh, and turn against one another, that one of the consequences of sin entering the world, and with sin comes death, and with death comes fear and scarcity and guilt and shame and hiding and division and blaming, does work itself become toil? That is by the sweat of your brow, for, the, for your survival, that it is uh, that you are going to fight the thorns of this world to make your existence sure. That's not God's design. That God's design was that we would have fruitful labor, that we would have work that is a blessing and brings glory to God and gives meaning to our lives. And so in the gospel, God flips everything upside down. And so what we find is this invitation into a right perspective on what it means to work well and what the point and the perspective of our life is meant to be, which is where we get into Philippians, this letter Paul is writing to remind this little church that's surrounded by so much cultural pressure 
that it's beginning to undermine their faith and create division within their body. And so Paul writes them this letter to remind them who they are, who they belong to, where they're headed, what they were created for, and that in all of it, this invitation into this abundant life in Christ, a life of joy and purpose, a fruitful life of substance and significance. And so we're going to continue on looking at this next passage of Philippians. You're going to want a Bible. If you have a Bible, go on and open up to Philippians chapter 1. If you need a Bible, you got some folks walking around, just slip up a hand and they'll put a Bible in your hand so that you can follow along with us. Now, as you're finding your way there to Philippians chapter 1, uh, a few things to celebrate. We're talking about even like good work that God has prepared in advance for us to do. Uh, God, the mission of this church that God gave us is pursuing God's heart for the restoration of all things. First and foremost, that we would see restoration between people and God back in relationship with God, their creator. The restoring of hopes and dreams, the restoring of relationships, the restoring of families, uh, the restoring of purpose and significance. That we believe God, is, 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 his desire is through his people to bring restoration here on earth for the sake of his kingdom. And a couple of things that are just beautiful to celebrate. One is that uh, two Wednesdays ago, um, we started Kids Life and, and Lug. And in Kids Life, which is basically I mean, five-year-olds to fifth graders, have uh, over 100 kids signed up to be discipled uh, on Wednesday nights. Uh, yeah, to be rooted in the Bible and given a vision for mission with their life. And, and so just this fun, controlled chaos of 100 little ones if you want a jolt of adrenaline, show up here on Wednesday nights at about 6 p.m. with 100 little ones running around, but it just uh, excited to be here. It's just so fun to watch them growing in their faith. And so uh, our heartbeat, obviously, about, of restoration is, is to engage, reach the next generation, but also we say reaching the neighborhoods. It's another celebration of good work God has prepared in advance. Uh, is uh, A couple weeks ago, Peter stood up here. And if you remember, and uh, invited us to be a part of a, this uh, tangible need in our community to provide um, uh, everyday uh, supplies for the elderly uh, in our community and the neighborhoods that surround us who are in need. And so we passed out a bunch of grocery bags with some, some lists on them, some, some uh, items that were needed for, for elderly care, and um, didn't know what to expect, you know, just kind of put it out there, see what, you know, if we could get a few bags back uh, to bless some of our neighbors. And so far, we've received over 250 grocery bags full of supplies. Yeah, it's amazing. In fact, it's, it's so much so that Peter's like our original partner, First, uh, first AB, the church right up uh, as you're coming into town, um, he is now having to find other partners in the community to find more neighbors that we can bless. So how amazing is that to have so much blessing? It's like, all right, God, what do we get to do now? So Thank you for your generosity in that, and uh, excited to continue to see God stir up creative ways, uh, good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. So let's look at this passage of Philippians and dive in a little bit and see what God might be speaking into our church and our lives this morning. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we begin God's word, book of Philippians, right at the end of chapter 1, verse 18. Yes, Paul writes, and I will rejoice. 
For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with, that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. You see, I'm hard-pressed between the two. But to remain in the flesh, or my desire, sorry, is to depart and to be with Christ. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account or for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. And this is a clear sign or testimony to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that is from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. You may be seated. God's word. So Paul has written this letter to this little church trying to figure out and remember what it means to follow Jesus well in this broken and, uh, and, and dark world. And that the pressures that surrounded them, threatening to, to divide them from within, his call that they would be unified in Christ, that remember who they are, who they belong to, and to what they are called to do, and he uh, and he begins with this. Obviously, he begins with a prayer for them, uh, that uh, for their thanking God for their partnership in the gospel, and and praying that God, recognizing God is going to continue to work Himself out in you. And then Brandon did such a phenomenal job last week that Paul is able to write from this perspective that wherever he is, no matter what his circumstances are that he's able to experience joy in the presence of God and the power of Christ in his life. So much so that this, this almost nonsensical joy is able to, to translate out, to impact those around him that see something different in his life, that see that despite whatever situation he finds himself in, that he's rooted in the presence and the knowledge of God in Christ. And then he sort of gives his mission statement for life, that powerful little phrase, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. That for Paul and for us, that his life was defined by, centered in, 
pointing to Jesus. That that was his core identity as one who had been found in Christ and would be fully known in Christ. That Jesus is his identity and his destiny. Paul references this uh, in multiple letters, this sense of being so intertwined, identified in Christ, that it reorients his whole perspective of himself and his world. In fact, in Colossians 3.1, this is what he writes. He says, talking to uh, the believers, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul, recognizing that the power of the gospel, the power of the cross, wasn't simply Jesus dying for our sin, the death that we deserve, though it is that and that powerful truth, the forgiveness of God because of the death of Christ. But the amazing gift of the gospel is that, is that not only does Jesus take our brokenness, our sin, our shame, the places that we've turned against God and turned against one another, our selfishness, our self-centeredness, the ways that we've placed ourselves on the throne of our life and displaced God, and that Jesus died for the debt that we owe our rebellion against God. But the exchange of the cross is not only that he forgives us, that he pours into us his life. He died the death that we deserve so that we could live the life that he lived. If we let the old die so that in the power of the resurrection, the new can be born. And this is the invitation of what it means to, to be identified with Christ. Is that the old is gone, the old dies on the cross, but the new is born in Jesus. That our life is now hidden with Christ in God. Which means now that our perspective on life is that we are, we are rooted firmly in Jesus who knows us and is with us and will always be for us. So that no matter what happens in the world around us, no matter what happens with our circumstances, that Paul, so Paul can write from a jail cell. My life is Christ's. Now, at the same time, Paul recognizes that this life, this earthly body, isn't the whole story. That our Christian hope is that we belong to an eternal God who created us for an eternal life with him. We begin to enter into this life now, but one day we will know him fully even as we're fully known. Or as 1 Corinthians describes, it's like we're looking at God through a dim mirror, but then we shall see him Clearly. Then we will be fully transformed, fully healed, fully restored, fully free. And so that Paul can live as a free man even as he sits in prison because he knows that he belongs to a God who will restore him fully one day. That's his perspective. That he's able to step back and to kind of take the, the 30,000 foot view. And recognize that while I'm here in the body, I am in Christ. He is with me and he is for me. And nothing can take that away from me. 
but this body is temporary and I am being, being held for a, for a day where every tear will be wiped away, where death will have no more, where sin will be gone and, and God will fully restore all things. And so he was able to live well, but he's also able to die well. As a pastor, one of the, the sacred, sacred privileges that I, I get to have is to, to stand and walk with families through uh, the loss of, of life, through death of, the death of loved ones, doing funerals and celebrations of life. And one thing that always strikes me whenever uh, officiating a funeral is that death never feels natural. Like even if they describe like natural, he died of natural causes. The reality is, is that death never feels natural. Someone could be 106 years old, and the family's still like, why did they have to die? Well, they were 106. <laughs> but because it, we weren't created for death. Death is a stranger in this world. God created us for himself, not for death. And so we are still created to be bound with and caught up in God forever. Made available because of Jesus Christ. But death is, death is the enemy. Death is the stranger in the land. It wasn't God's plan and it wasn't God's design. Death is what came when we walked away from the creator and the author of life. But for those who have been... Uh, brought into Christ, it changes our perspective of death. That is our Christian hope. I don't know if you've uh, had the privilege of um, walking with somebody at the, that knows that they're at the end of their life, uh, that has a relationship with Jesus. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful things. I remember uh, uh, Miss Carol, and many of you knew Miss Carol, just this bright, vibrant lady, and she battled uh, illnesses and sicknesses for a number of years uh, before she passed away, but always just the most like positive, generous, genuine spirit. And I remember going in and uh, sitting with her and her family at, in the hospital or in the hospice when uh, at the end of life, and they just knew uh, that the time had come. And just that joy that she carried because she knew where she was going. And what she knew was that this broken body wasn't going to last much longer. But that she was about to be fully healed, fully restored, laughing and dancing and embraced by her Savior, Jesus. About 20 years ago, there was a young man named Jesse Smith. Jesse was a ninth grader at Parkview High School. Uh, played baseball. He'd been diagnosed with uh, a malignant brain tumor. And Jesse knew Jesus. And, uh, and when anyone would come and sit with Jesse, and he took, did chemo and radiation, and they fought that tumor as hard as they could, uh, but it just set towards the end, he realized this isn't going away. This isn't going away. And uh, at the end, towards the end of his life, anyone that would try to walk into Jesse's room to try to console him or to make him feel better, he would put his hand on their shoulder and he'd be like, hey, I know where I'm going. It's you I need to be praying for. 
that amazing this little 13-year-old boy? People come in and pray for him, and he's like, no, 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 I need to pray for you. I'm fine. In fact, his funeral was held uh, on, um, it's, the uh, casket was on the home plate of the Parview baseball field uh, because um, he was going home, once and for all going home. And it was amazing is that his spirit that burned so bright in life and was so anticipated being held by his father, it was this contagious joy that sparked uh, a, a revival at Parkview um, back that was in the, in the, the late 90s. But um, that spread through that now looking, we're, what, 30 years removed from that. And uh, there are uh, Christian leaders, business leaders, pastors, missionaries that all came out of Parkview at that time. That all traced the roots of them coming to Jesus by being at Jesse Smith's funeral. And in fact, the, the call, when, when you hear Grace, uh, if you go to any Grace church, there's a lady and her daughter that were here this morning that go to Grace Snellville and they just wanted to visit another Grace church, which I love because every Grace church is so different and yet there's this common core. You kind of just get this feel like this is Grace. And one of those common core things is uh, we talk about the next generation a lot. We're all about going after the next generation. We're all about going after the next generation. Do you know where that call to go after the next generation came from? Jesse Smith's funeral at Parkview High School. Up until then, student ministry, kid ministry, it was something the church did because it's what the church is supposed to do. After that moment, it became a defining foundation of who we knew God was calling us to be as a church. Now, I share all that to say to you as we read these words from Paul. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And whether you're 13 or you're 80 or 90 or 106, in Christ, that is the truth that defines our life. It's what we're invited into. And it changes our perspective on everything. All of a sudden, the possibility of losing a job or a stock market crash or a war or a uh, an election doesn't shake our lives the way it does the rest of this world because we stand on a firmer foundation, a kingdom that cannot be shaken because we belong to one who cannot take, be taken away or take us away. We're not defined by our circumstances. And this is so, as, as I was reflecting on this passage, this is so opposite of the world that we live in. I mean, this is so, like, antithesis to the water that we're swimming in, that if we're not careful and conscious of, it will shape the way that we think about this world when we wake up in the morning. And that is, this life is all you have, and it's up to you to make it work. So whether that is to get comfortably numb, or to maximize pleasure and minimize pain, to have enough fun experiences to make life worth living, because the worst thing that can happen to you in life is for you to die. That's the message of this world. The second worst thing that can happen to you besides dying is getting old. And we will do everything we can to keep that from happening. Buy every pill, get every cream, get on every program, right? Amen? To just keep us from getting old. I got bad news for us. It's impossible. It's chasing the wind, right? So no wonder we're so anxious. 
and, and insecure because our lives are built around trying to acquire something that is an illusion. It's impossible. We've been chasing the fountain of youth for millennia and never found it. And what God is inviting us into is something so much deeper, so much more real, so much more sub, sub, substantive. I'm struggling with that word. Of substance. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, for Paul, sitting in a Roman prison cell, surrounded by guards, cut off from his friends and family, getting news of churches struggling, of persecution happening across the Roman Empire, of course, as he stares at that brick wall, he would say, to die is gain. It's better than this. I mean, that's his line, right? To, to go be with God would be better by far, he says. The hard thing for us is that most of us live in America, even, I mean, we, there's lack definitely in our world. And there are those that are struggling to, to make ends meet. And there are those that are, that are hungering and that don't have what they need. But in general, our lives are pretty okay. And it's easy to, to think that maybe heaven is meant to be here. And that to lose what we have here would be to lose the good stuff and to settle for second best one day when we go sit on a cloud. Right? And so if we could just try to make heaven now. But heaven isn't a nice house, a good car, and a fat paycheck. Heaven is peace and joy and unconditional love and mercy and kindness and justice and righteousness and compassion and grace and goodness. Heaven is the glory of, of God extending like the waters cover the seas. Heaven is truth and beauty and goodness and grace. And when we get that vision of heaven, the kingdom of God, it's very easy to see that, there, that this world is far from heaven. And that the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray is just as applicable now as it was then. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Our job isn't to enjoy heaven here on earth. Our job is to bring heaven to earth. And I think, in fact, some of the deconstruction that we've seen over the last 10 or so years, especially in 20-somethings, where they're questioning and ultimately walking away from their faith, is because we sold them a gospel that told them, if you take Jesus like a pill, it'll make your life better. You'll be happy and complete and no more problems. And all of a sudden, they get a little bit older, and they get cancer, they lose a job, a relationship falls apart, and they wonder, what happened to this Jesus that told me everything was going to be okay? And they're walking away. Honestly, they're walking rightly away from a gospel that just isn't true. But the Bible never hides the fact, the, the brokenness of this world. In fact, Jesus will say is, is that... Uh, is that 
in this world, you're going to have many troubles, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The Bible is clear that we live in a broken world with struggles and pain. But what the Bible is clear is that we, that God is present with us in it. And that we are destined for the fullness of God in Christ. And so Paul could say, my desire is to depart and to go be with God. And that word depart there, it's actually a really sweet word in the Greek. It's, uh, it's, the, it's the imagery of if you were to untie a boat uh, from the pier and that boat was to drift away, to be unmoored. And so he's giving this picture. He's like, my desire is to be untied from this world and to be able to drift to be with my Jesus. But for your sake, Paul says, it's better that I stay. And Paul's whole perspective throughout this whole letter that he's trying to give the Philippians, that he's both modeling and exhorting them to, is that our lives aren't meant to be lived for ourselves, but for the sake of others. And so Paul is even willing to say, man, if it is better for you that I sit in this uh, prison cell, if that I continue to endure hardship and persecution, if that's better for your faith and your progress, that is fruitful labor for me. That is a job worth doing. And that is a, jo- and that is a task that is worth sticking around for. I mean, Paul's already elsewhere has given a description of, of, the, of, of the happy Christian life that he's lived. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. He wrote that five years before he would write a letter to the Philippians saying, I rejoice. Let me say it again. I rejoice. Paul knew the brokenness of this world, but he lived a life for the sake of others and with the perspective of Christ. That his circumstances didn't define him. And so what we find is that with Christ in this life, that we have a role to play, or fruitful labor, as he calls it. In Ephesians 2.8, Paul writes, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, The grace God gives you is not something you can earn or that you deserve. Elsewhere, he writes that it's while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. There's not anything you can do to work for God's grace in your life. It's to his credit, not yours. But then the very next verse is this. So it is, you're not saved by works, but by grace. But verse 10. 
for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, we work from God's acceptance and approval, not for God's acceptance and approval. I'll say that again. Because it changes everything in how we relate to our Father in heaven. You work from God's acceptance and approval. That he looked you full in the face. He looked at the brokenness of your lives. He looked at your failures and your flaws. And he still said, I choose you. Come be with me. We don't work for his acceptance and approval. We don't strive for his affection or his love. We strive from his affection and his love. And it's from that place of knowing he didn't deserve it, but that God poured out his mercy and grace, that Paul was given a mission and a purpose in life. The same is true for us. And Paul shifts. At first, he's talking about from his perspective. That it's better for you that I stay, even though I would rather go. And then what is that fruitful labor? He says it in 25. I'll remain and I'll continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. In other words, my role here, the fruitful labor that I'm going after, is that you would continue to move forward with God. That you would continue to take that next step of faith with Jesus. And as you progress with Christ, as you grow in joy, as you're rooted in faith, that you'll have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. And then he states his desire for them. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is my perspective, Paul says, that to live is Christ, to die is gain. That it's better for you that I stick around, that you could continue to progress in the faith. But for you, this is what I want. In fact, that word only, that's, it's not strong enough. Uh, that the Greek is actually more above all else. This one thing, Paul says. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And even that word, let your manner of life, it's just one word. And it actually uh, is, is more literally translated, live as a citizen, worthy of the gospel of Christ. Later in uh, chapter 3, Paul will say that your citizenship is in heaven. That he recognizes that we, while we live on this earth, that we belong to a different kingdom. And that that kingdom is in conflict with the empire of this world. In fact, at the end, when it talks about that, he says, uh, don't be afraid of any that oppose you. Just as he started with, I'm not afraid of those who oppose me. And in fact, that by you're not being afraid of those that oppose you, it'll be a testimony to them that they are on the pathway of destruction and that you are on the pathway of life and salvation. And that it is actually a blessing that you're engaged in this same conflict that I have, or that I've had and that I still have. 
And so the question there is, like, what is this conflict that Paul's engaged in, that he recognizes the Philippians are in the same battle, that he's telling them not to be afraid in the face of their opponents? For most of Acts and most of Paul's missionary journeys, that his greatest opponent uh, came from his fellow Jews that opposed his message that Jesus was the Christ, the, the waited-for promised king and Messiah. But here in Philippi, it's not a Jewish city. It's a thoroughly Roman city. And right now, and as Paul's writing this, he's sitting in a Roman jail cell. The conflict that he's describing is not a religious conflict between Jews and Christians. It's a political conflict between Jesus and Caesar. And who are you allegiant to? What is your primary allegiance? Is it Christ or is it Caesar? Is it the empire of Rome or is it the kingdom of God? Who are you trusting for salvation to bring peace into the world? And with Paul stepping into Roman city after Roman city and saying, this Caesar is a temporary power, but the true king is Jesus, the only one that can truly provide what you need and can only, the only one that can bring peace into this world. And it is his kingdom that is unshakable. And every other kingdom of mankind will be overthrown. That we pledge allegiance to King Jesus, first and foremost. And the Roman government did not like that at all. To them, Caesar was God. Caesar was Lord. He was the one that was bringing stability into the world, into the land. He was the one that could provide for your needs. And as long as you stayed true to, to, to uh, Emperor Caesar, you'd be okay. But who is this King Jesus? And this band of believers trying to, to remember and figure out how to live rightfully with Jesus in this empire-saturated world. And I don't think it takes too great a leap of imagination to move 2,000 years forward in history to 2023 in Walton County, Georgia, to see how the temptation and the conflict is just the same for us today as it was for them. Who are we trusting in to bring peace to this world? Who are we trusting in to provide for our lives? Is our faith in the outcome of an election is our faith in a political party? Is our faith in a certain set of laws and rules getting passed? Or is our faith in King Jesus? And no matter what happens in this world, is in charge and in control. Now at the same time, Paul recognizes that we are citizens of heaven, but also we're living on earth. And we are to live well in this world. We are to engage the world in which we live, which is why we can work for the good of this world. And we can stand for justice and mercy. And we can uh, stand up for the vulnerable. And we can go after the marginalized. And we can try to bring hope when there's brokenness. And we are to be the tangible expression of Jesus Christ here on earth, the body of Jesus on earth. But we, at the same time, 
the most defining thing about us is our primary allegiance is to Jesus, which is why we can sit around a table with those that we disagree with and still find our commonality in Christ. But the threat is that the outside forces of this world, the man-made parties, would create division from within, and the thing that's meant to unify us would actually divide us. It's the same thing that was happening in Philippians. And so Paul says, above all things, live as citizens worthy of the gospel. And in doing so, you'll stand united, firm in one spirit, with one common mind. And unity doesn't mean uniformity. I mean, over and over again, when Paul talks about this living, visible representation of Jesus on earth, the church, he talks about that there are many parts. Every one of you has a role to play, and that role looks different than the person sitting next to you. The way you see the world, the way you think about things, the things you notice, the things you're passionate about, the story that you have to tell, the gifts and the talents that you bring, your vocation and your calling is unique, and we need what you have. And you need what we have. The body is meant to, to not look the same but to be united in Christ, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything. Over and over again, the Bible is clear. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. That it's in our fear that we run and hide. It's in fear that we stand up and fight. But that phrase, do not be afraid, is usually followed by, for I am with you. Do not be afraid of whatever's happening in the world around you, of the way that this world opposes you, of the things that you face, for I am with you. And do not be afraid, Jesus says, for I am coming for you. goes back to Paul's perspective to live as Christ and to die as gain. So where are the places? understanding of this world to affect the way we see our lives and our circumstances. Where are the places that God is calling you to step back and take the, a renewed 30,000 foot view of your life and what's true, of who you are that can't be taken away, and who you belong to that does not change, and where you're headed that is sure so that you can re-engage in this world with what you carry. Fruitful labor, good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do. I want to pray for us. And then we'll take communion together.
communion, that reminder of the presence and the forgiveness of God in Christ, that Jesus took that bread at the Last Supper just before walking out the door to the cross. And he broke it, and he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat, and every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. That we recenter ourselves around the present reality of Christ, the availability of the kingdom of God. As we take that bread, it's a reminder of the substance of God for us in Jesus. And then Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, of your sins. The blood of a new covenant, new relationship. Take and drink and every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. That in the cup, we remember the forgiveness of Christ poured out on the cross for our sins. That we could stand forgiven and free before God. And it's just after taking that communion of, of the bread and the cup, of giving these, the substance of our faith and this reminder that we keep recentering our lives around, that Jesus would say to the disciples, that I created you to go and to bear fruit, chose you to go and bear fruit that would last. But apart from me, you can do nothing. But for the one that makes their home in me and lets me make my home in them, they will bear much fruit. And so this invitation into a fruitful life, into fruitful labor, is an invitation to intimacy with Jesus. And so even as I invite you to close your eyes and even let that prayer in Psalm 139, God, to search your heart, to know you, to see if there's any wayward thought in you. Where are the places that you need to invite Jesus to make his home in you? places of fear? Places of sin or struggle? Places of guilt or shame? Is there anywhere that you've begun to believe the lie happens on this earth in the body is the most important thing. Is there any place that you need to pledge allegiance to King Jesus and renounce the world? So just between you and God, just to pray, in the name of Jesus, I confess Whatever it is, the Bible's clear that when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. When we acknowledge the ways that we've fallen short of His kingdom, He's faithful to forgive, to cleanse, and to set free.
Jesus on the cross so that he can resurrect in your soul the truth of his kingdom.